Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. There's a lot going on at the moment in the world. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to two Iranian women about the protests in their country, about their fight for freedom and about their hopes for the future. This is not just about killing of a young woman that actually became the, became the torch and, and shed the light on all kinds of abuses and suppression and tyranny that this regime is doing to Iranian people. That was the voice of Yegena Razayan there, and we'll be hearing more about those incredible scenes and protests in Iran later on. But first, what a week for women's football in Ireland. Vera Pau's women's team has qualified for the World Cup, the first time a women's team from here has done that. So congratulations to every single person on the team and behind the scenes, including the parents and families who have supported them for years. We have to mention that this achievement was somewhat overshadowed by a video from the dressing room that showed the team celebrating after the match in Glasgow by singing among one of many songs, Celtic Symphony by the Wolf Tones, which of course features that refrain, ooh, ah, up the ra. And they quickly apologised for the hurt that caused a lot of people. It was actually a proper apology, not one of those fake ones. And I think they all realised that it was a thoughtless thing to be doing and singing as part of their celebrations. But I don't think it should overshadow that incredible victory and I hope it doesn't. Here's a clip from when Amber Barrett scored that winning goal and also her words of tribute to those who died and were affected by the tragedy in Creaseluck, County Donegal. Fine standing firm. Now it's O'Sullivan. And there's the run of Barrett. And Barrett's giving herself a chance here. Amber Barrett in on goal. Amber Barrett makes the breakthrough. That was sheer brilliance from Amber Barrett. The first touch to take her clear was absolutely terrific. And Amber Barrett kneels in celebration in honour of the Donegal folk who passed away in the disaster in Chrysler. I know Chrysler like the back of my hand. My, both my grandparents were, were Chrysler born and bred and I spent my whole upbringing there during the summers and, and Christmases. Now every year I go back from, from football, I go to my uncle who's still living down in Chrysler. I know people that died in the tragedy. I know people who were affected by the tragedy. I know people who were first on the scene of the tragedy. And I've not been able to put into words about it. I've, there's been like a somber somberness about me the last few days that I think, you know, this is the best day of my life in terms of what we've done for football. But, you know, when you put it into perspective, like we don't scratch the surface of what happened over there on Friday. And I'm just, this, this result, this game, that goal, this award... I'm dedicating it for those 10 beautiful souls who unfortunately perished on Friday for all their families because I know they touched their lives. They certainly touched ours and this is for Chris and this is for Donegal. That was the voice of Amber Barrett of the Ireland's women's soccer team. Come on, you women in green. Coy wig. What an incredible moment and we've got a World Cup to look forward to. Other news this week, which makes us think again of the lack of training for judges around sexual assault of women because in County Tyrone, A judge has encouraged a prolific offender who sexually attacked a woman he met through a dating website to, quotes, find a wife or partner and get a family and home together. This is the case you might have read about of Cahill, 
Patrick Feeney, 36-year-old from Main Street in Berra, County Tyrone, who first appeared in court over two years ago, originally charged with raping the victim in her home. On being returned for trial at Dungannon Crown Court, the defendant, who the police described as dangerous to females, went on to accept a lesser sexual assault charge. The court was told eight women, including his mother and grandmother, had taken non-molestation orders out against Feeney. He also has convictions for assaults and breaches of court orders, with the majority of his offending occurring while intoxicated. Not that I think that's relevant, but anyway, Judge Sherrod said this marked him as a belligerent, drunken thug, a bully and a nuisance. But of course, because this is Ireland, it was noted Feeney received support from prison chaplain Father Michael Bingham, who recently died, um, but found... Before his death, the character image of the defendant being a menace to vulnerable women is one I find hard to reconcile, given his moral sensibilities. Feeney was sentenced to four and a half years in prison, the bulk of which has been served on remand and handed a seven year sexual offences prevention order. However, the judge declined to ban Feeney from contacting women through the Internet because he did not, quotes again, want him excluded from normal life. It's not the online contact which proved problematic, but rather the behaviour afterwards, he said. And in concluding, Judge Sherrod told Feeney, you are still a young man. There's nothing that will stop you moving on with your life in a more productive way, finding work or finding a wife or partner, getting a family and a home. There are no words really, but at least this case has been shared widely and people have loudly objected to a judge encouraging a man like that to go and find another woman and have a family. Like I said at the beginning, some training in this is badly needed in the judiciary. That story couldn't be more different from the news in Australia because Australia is sending a very strong message to domestic abusers worldwide. And that message is you are not welcome here. Uh, they have recently broadened a migration law to bar any person who has been convicted of domestic violence anywhere in the world from getting a visa to enter the country. American R&B singer Chris Brown and boxing star Floyd Mayweather have been banned from the country in the past following their domestic violence convictions. Now the ban applies to all foreign visitors or residents who have been found guilty of violence against women or children. Even convicted domestic abusers who already have visas and are living in Australia can be kicked out under the new rule. The government is using this rule to send a message to domestic violence perpetrators and it's really important in a country where a recent survey of domestic violence uh, revealed that one in three women and one in five men have experienced at least one instant of violence from a current or former partner since the age of 15. So sometimes when we think things are moving backwards um, and you look at County Tyrone, that is just horrendous. Uh, there are other more progressive things happening in the world. So we wanted to bring you that one. And finally, before we turn to events in Iran, just a little note for your diaries. On the evening of Tuesday, October 18th, that's this Tuesday, reproductive rights activists from Poland and Chile will join well-known Irish and Northern Irish activists for an online panel discussion as part of the Dublin Arts and Human Rights Festival. The National Women's Council are going to host Justina Widrzynska from Poland, Lieta Vivaldi Macho from Chile, Emma Campbell from Northern Ireland and friend of this podcast, Alva Smith, to discuss where the Irish movement for abortion rights fits into the global context. The speakers will also give an overview of the struggle for reproductive rights in their own countries. And it's a timely discussion coming just as the Irish government is due to publish the independent review into Ireland's new legislation on abortion. That review, led by Mario Shea, is due for publication before the end of the year. And if you want to re register for that event on Tuesday, uh, go to smashingtimes.ie. So that's smashingtimes.ie forward slash event forward slash the struggle for abortion rights in Ireland and internationally. But if you just go to smashingtimes.ie, I'm sure you'll be able to register for that and I think it's well worth it. Now, we've all been watching with horror and in solidarity the events in Iran where people have been protesting against the oppressive regime in that country. These latest protests were triggered a month ago by the death while in police custody of Kurdish-Iranian 22-year-old Masa Amini who was detained by Iran's morality police for not fully complying with Iran's hijab laws. Since her death, there have been protests around the country and a brutal response from the Islamic regime there, including arrests, beatings, 
murders of more than 100 people, including several children. There have been internet outages in an attempt to cut protesters off from the outside world. It's all been an incredible show of courage and resistance by women and girls, particularly in Iran. They've been burning the hijab. School children have been in uproar. But it's also important to point out that the protests cross gender and age divides as people make clear their demands, not just for reform of the regime, but for the end of the Islamic Republic. And I just wanted to explain a few things about that regime. At the top, as you know, is the supreme leader. He's the most powerful figure in Iran. He's the Ayatollah al-Khamenei, a priest, essentially, the country's supreme leader since 1989. He's the head of state and commander in chief. He has authority over the national police and the morality police, whose officers detained Masa Amini. Uh, The morality police were established in 2005 to uphold Islamic morals and laws on quotes, proper dress, which were introduced after the Islamic Revolution of 1979. It's estimated 7,000 male and female officers have the power to issue warnings, impose fines or arrest suspects. The Iran president, Raisi, he's a hardliner, has introduced several new measures for enforcing the hijab rules earlier this summer. Surveillance cameras were introduced to help spot unveiled women and a mandatory prison sentence was introduced for people opposing the hijab rules on social media. Now, Iranian women have been at the centre of protests in that country for a very long time, as far back as the early 1900s and through uprisings in the 1950s and the protests around the hijab in more recent years. I spoke to two women about the situation there. Um, And as you know, there's several different ethnicities in Iran, including Kurdish and Persian and Turkish. Mariam Mohit Mafi is a 31-year-old Persian-Iranian woman who is now based in Dublin, having arrived here a couple of years ago. And Yegina Razayan, who goes by Yegi, is an Iranian journalist based in Washington, D.C. in the United States. Mariam came here a couple of years ago, as I said, with her partner in search of freedom, and she has direct experience growing up of the morality police in Iran. Yegina grew up in Iran in the 80s and married an American journalist. She became a journalist herself. But in 2014, she and her husband were arrested and detained in Iran on dubious charges. They eventually managed to flee to America, where she now works on the committee to protect journalists. And I was very grateful to hear their stories and their thoughts on the situation in Iran. I began by asking Yegina to tell us about Masa Amini and the events that sparked the current protests. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and privilege to be able to talk to you and and your audience, your your listeners. Uh, Massa was a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who was traveling over the summer at the end of September with her parents and brother to Tehran uh, as part of her summer trip. So if you can imagine, she was traveling and had no idea uh, what faith was awaiting her. And according to officials or, or the Iranian state-run media, she was not wearing her Islamic hijab properly when she came out of a metro station. And usually the morality police is located uh, either at the entrance of, of like a shopping mall or at the entrance of a, of a metro station. So she came up on a escalator from a metro station and she was immediately faced by the morality police officers and they confronted her, they separated her based on what I have read uh, from her family and that's when apparently the accident happened to her or or maybe, who knows, maybe it was not an accident. That's where she was brutally faced um, with violence um, and she was beaten and she was pushed apparently and her head hit the the curb on the street. That's what, based on the, the medical papers that was obtained by a hacker group. So there's no um, credible information about exactly how she got the head injury, but these are all what we have seen um, and and we are speculating. What I want to tell you is that morality police 
is a very violent group. I have personally been arrested with them multiple times. From the moment you are in their custody, they try to badmouth you. They try to make you believe that you made a crime. They they are very harsh people. Even the women police in, in that unit are, are very harsh and not nice and, and try to to confront you in the worst possible way. Violence is one of their weapons um and then they arrest you and usually when they arrest you they take you to different um they have different stations but the station that Massa was taken Bozara is one of the worst ones I'm sure Mariam can attest to that um is one of the worst one not just in Tehran but in the country uh and she was taken there there's no credible information about what fate she faced there but obviously the footages that the government released shows her all of a sudden falling uh over a chair and it's very sad she was very young 22 years is not the age that you are supposed to be confronted with the police of your country like that uh she was absolutely innocent of any wrongdoing um mm, we are let's be honest in the 21st century no one should be treated like that for wearing whatever or not wearing whatever this is beyond cruelty yeah i just want to ask you you used the word accident earlier but just just to clarify her family and many many people believe her death was caused by the the actions of those morality police that's correct. I, I believe, yeah, no, uh, accident is not the right word. It's an incident. Um, no one knows what incident she she went through. And what I wanted to to rectify myself by saying that this is actually not an accident because this is not the first time that a woman or a young Iranians or any person um, gets killed in the custody of, of Iranian police, whether morality police or other forms of uh, military um, security forces. We had the Iranian-Canadian photojournalist Zahra Kazemi face the same fate back in 2012. No one knows what happened to her. The famous blogger, the prominent blogger Satar Beheshti was beaten up in custody and then they said, oh, his head hit the wall and that's how he died. What do you guys do to people that they are not intentionally hitting their head to the wall or to the curb? You guys are doing this to them, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I doubt that it's unintentional. Um, I was actually talking to one of my friends in Tehran a couple of days ago, and she said she participated in some of these protests. And she was telling me, one of her friends was arrested right in front of her eyes um, a few nights ago in Tehran. And she said those police, those security forces that arrested her friends were there to kill them. That's how intentional it is. They mean they come after you. They do not have any mercy. Uh, imagine a fellow Irish person does that to you. It's unbelievable. I want to ask you about the female journalists that broke the story and what happened to them after they did. That's uh, Nilafur Hamadi and Allah Mohammadi. Mohammadi. Yes. They yes, were arrested and they have paid a very big price for, for breaking the story. Yes, they are both arrested. They were immediately arrested. Nilufar is the one who stayed, who writes for Shar daily and, and broke the story and, and stayed connected, stay in touch with, with Masa Amini's family and was in the hospital while they were um, with Masa in the hospital the last few hours. She published several photos of the family mourning even before it was officially announced that Masa was dead. But they were there, they were crying, they were mourning. She was the one that um, released that photo of her lying on the on the bed in a hospital, which is a very terrible picture, uh, but tells the reality very clearly. Um, and then Elahe is the one who traveled to the city and covered the funeral. She's the one who first covered the first protest that happened at the funeral of Massa. They are both in custody. They were arrested immediately after they broke these stories. 
Since then, they are both in solitary confinement in a Vin prison. Based on what I, we have researched at the Committee to Protect Journalists, we know that Nilufar uh, was detained in Ward 209 of Evin Prison and she was able to make very short call back home to her husband and let them know that she was not officially charged with anything yet or she's not aware of, she was not aware of her charges, but she was going under and through very heavy interrogations. That's all we know so far. We've seen since the death of Massa Amini that the incredible protests, the displays of courage um, by women and girls in Iran and also men, because this crosses gender and crosses age. This is not just women um, who are protesting. Right. Um, and we've right. seen the response of the regime, arrests, beatings, murders, including children. We've seen the Internet outages. This this um, frustration and uh, has been building against the regime for years, hasn't it? Yes, that's very correct. That's a very correct observation. This is not just about killing of a young woman. That actually became the became the torch and and shed the light on all kinds of abuses and suppression and tyranny that this regime is doing to Iranian people. Um for the past couple of years, um bus drivers were on strike. Teachers were on strike. In one weekend, a couple of months ago, only in one city, like in, in, in the capital, in Tehran, over 200 teachers were arrested because they were on strike. There is no press freedom. There is no bright future for these young, smart, educated Iranians. There is no job opportunity. There is no social freedom. Even a few years ago, they used to blame everything on United States and, and Britain and the rest of the world powers and saying, we do not have access to any of these things because of the nuclear negotiations that is going on. They cannot deceive people with that excuse anymore. People know whether the negotiations go through or don't go through it won't bring them any freedom. It won't bring them any any uh, prosperity. Um, so at this point, the government is out of excuses and is just facing this smart, young, educated, well-connected to the rest of the world generation of Iranians. And, and those abuses, at some point, people will break out. I mean, there's a beautiful poem in Farsi in my language that says, um, I just tell you the translation. It says, um, you kill one seed, but then I, I am like, I, I go back into the, to the soil and come out like a tree. You, you plant a seed. I become a tree. How many can they kill? Let's say they kill three years ago when, when the November 2019 protest happened, they killed thousands, uh, arrested thousands, but, and they were hoping that, okay, this is the end of it, but see where we are today. So this is not just one excuse. And let's be honest, women are suffering from all of those problems, like not having good jobs, not having money, not having any prosperity, not enjoying press freedom or social freedom, um, corruption, economic problems. Women suffer all of those. But on top of that, this compulsory hijab is is a hammer that the regime is always banging on their head and limiting them even more. That's why women are leading this revolution. Mm. And speaking of leaving, and I want to bring Mariam in in, in a moment, but Yegi, you managed to get out in 2016 after you and your partner were arrested on very spurious charges. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your life has been since you left Iran? Sure, yeah. My husband and I, who was the Washington Post bureau chief at the time in Tehran, were arrested in 2011, into, sorry, 2014, I'm sorry, on bogus charges. Uh, I was never tried or, or um, charged with anything officially, but they kept me in solitary confinement for 69 days. And then I, I was gen- com- totally detained of, of 72 nights. Um, 
but then they kept me um, under house arrest while they kept my husband in detention in a Vin prison, and he was eventually released as part of the the nuclear negotiation and the prisoner swap that happened between Iran and U.S. Um, He was the only American citizen working as a journalist in Iran at the time. So we assumed both being a journalist and an American made him a very good bargaining chip throughout those negotiations. Um, So that's that. Since then, I am now in the United States working for the Committee to Protect Journalists. I have been working for them since 2018 as a senior researcher trying to use my journalism to make sure that I can give voice to my other journalist colleagues all around the world, but especially in the Middle East and North Africa region, um, to, to make sure that our colleagues can do their jobs safely, whether it's their physical safety, online safety, and any form of abuse that they are going through. As as you can imagine, the world is a very dangerous and and dark place these days with the war and and other problems in Southeast Asia with the war in Ukraine, Afghanistan happened. So we are very busy. Um, but I'm hoping that there will be a day in our world that we can shut down our door and say, okay, there's no need for the committee to protect journalists. Go home. All journalists are safe and they are happy to do their job and they are protected and they have immunity and no one is going to kill a, uh, a woman like Shirin Abu Akla who is wearing a, a press vest. Um, so, but... I think we are far from that yet. Unfortunately, we are. Mariam, I want to bring you in here because Yagi talks so well about the restrictions that women in and girls in Iran are under. And you grew up there. You only moved to Ireland two years ago. Can you talk to us about the morality police and your um, experiences with them and the things that happened to you while you're living in Iran? Yeah, sure. I spent all of my life in Tehran. And I think it was really difficult for me because government do their best to brainwash you since you were born and the moment you start questioning and thinking everything that's the real challenge in your life start because as an Iranian woman you are under pressure from the government teacher system your family everyone so for me uh, my uh, experience with this morality police it happened the first time when I was only 14 years old and I was just literally walking in the street and they stopped me, they arrested me, they took me exactly to Bozara where Gegana said, and they just kept me and I was crying and I was saying, I'm only 14 years old, please leave me because I went to the street to buy my uniform for my uh, school because the day after that was the first day of school and they arrested me. They take mock shot, you know, the photographer on face and half face. And it's really, really terrible experience. And yeah, because, uh, you know, uh, which part is the most difficult part? Because I'm okay. If anyone wants to be Muslim, wants to have hijab, it's okay. It's their choice. But my choice was not to cover my hair. Why we always need to respect to Muslim people just want respect to our choice. That's all we want. That's all I think Iranian women want. And I think I was just telling this story to my uh, to my colleagues, to my Irish colleagues, and they said, was Mahsa protesting? And I was like, no, she was just walking in the street. She was doing nothing. This poor girl just walking in the street and the morality police stop randomly anyone who wants and they just arrest people. And that's really, really horrible. The day it happened with Mahsa Amini, I was, uh, I was just scrolling in my Twitter and I just saw a tweet. Uh, a girl was uh, writing, today I was walking in the street and the morality police arrested us they started beating a young girl. They beat to her head. She was an eyewitness who saw what they did with Mahsa Amini. And after this tweet, she completely disappeared. Because And after that, we read the news today, a young girl, this happened to Mahsa Amini and she completed, I mean, the government or whatever, they just disappeared, this girl. 
Marion, thank you so much. I mean, it sounds like you, all your life, it, it, despite being connected to the world through television, the internet and everything else, the, the reality of, of the um, existence you were living was very different. Did you long for freedom? Was, was freedom something that was always something that you were hoping that you would get in your life sometime? Yeah, exactly. I always wanted to take the control of my life, but it was not possible for me because imagine in Iran, as an Iranian woman, a woman's testimony in Iranian court is worth half as much as a man. A woman cannot leave the country without her husband's permission. Women are not allowed to go to stadium. Single women cannot check into the hotel. So it's gender apartheid. We just want to have the freedom. We want very basic things. And I think this a revolution, this protest, which started with the with hijab, is much more than hijab. Hijab is the most basic thing we want. We want many other things. We are just protesting against torture, forced confession, theocracy, lack of free speech, freedom of choice, child marriage, government corruption, theocracy. We just want a secular government. We are just very, very tired of this Islamic Republic. Tell us about this supreme leader and the way and what people think, because we've heard a lot of calls in the streets now, death to the dictator. These are things that possibly would have been unthinkable, you know, a while ago. But it feels as though this is a moment where it may be the end for the Islamic Republic. Do you feel that? Exactly, exactly. Now people are in the streets that death to dictator. Imagine in Ireland, the president or the, I mean, the, uh, the person who is in charge is a priest. Is it acceptable? No, not at all. Not just for a second. So the supreme leader has the highest power in the in Iran and he has the control of everything. And whenever people put him in charge of everything, he says, no, I do not have any power. We have judiciary power. We have president. But all of them, it's just a show. He has the control of everything. And people just want a regime change. People do not want this supreme leader, this Islamic Republic anymore. And Yegi, just to bring you back in, in the past it was about reform, but like Mariam says now, it's a different call. It's the it's the call for the end of this regime. Are you hopeful that this might be a different kind of moment for Iran? I really hope so. First of all, let me say, I don't even know how Mariam said, but she said everything very beautifully. This is a voice of a young woman who comes from Iran, and and this is a voice of what she said, I'm sure, is exactly the same as many, many other of of women of her age will will repeat and say in in Iran. Um, So thank you for everything you said. Um, In terms of it is different, yes, it is different. Am I hopeful? Um, I'm hopeful that at some point we can get to where Mariam said and and see the end of the system. Uh, But the truth is that um, Iranian people are fighting. They are civilians. They are fighting with empty hands. They do not have guns or arms or or anything. So this might be a very lengthy process. The regime might be able to suppress us one more time this time around, but it's, it's, it's going to be... We keep this anger and this satisfaction um, in our hearts and we carry it until we see another momentum. So whether whether it happens this week or next week, it may take three years, it may take 10 years, I hope not. Who knows? It is very hard to give a correct scope or, or trajectory of exactly what is happening both within the system and sometimes in the streets of Tehran because the government obviously shuts down internet immediately every time they want to they wanna go and face these pro- civilian protesters in the street with, with um, live ammunition because they don't want the, the pictures of, of their violence and brutality gets out. So that makes it extra hard to 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 give a right trajectory of where we are and where we will be in a few days. They were hoping that by doing so and shutting internet down, 
Um, people won't be able to connect to the outside world and they won't be able to connect with each other and maybe they won't be able to assemble and the protests die out after a few nights. But um, I'm, I'm glad that that hasn't happened yet. And thanks to, to the brave, um, very courageous young Iranians, students and, and the rest of them in different parts of the country. Um, so uh, I stay hopeful. I <laughs> Do as much as we can. I think it's on all of us, um, whether we are inside the country or outside the country. Um, but it will happen. It it might take some time, unfortunately. And Yagi, I know you have to go in, in a moment. I just want to ask you one last thing. I mean, I was struck by sure. what um, Mariam said there about gender apartheid. And that's, you know, all the people there are survivors of that. And that's what's going on. Do you think the world has... has um, treated it the same as it might have, say, apartheid in South Africa, if you think about it in terms of blacks and whites. Um, it, does it feel like because it's about women and girls, it's taking longer to kind of for the world to um, clamour for change there? Yeah, no, I don't think the world has treated it similar. Uh, first, of, because of several reasons. First, I think there were not enough foreigners or maybe foreign media in the country to be able to report this correctly and explain it to the outside world. Um, let's say like for many years, there were not many Americans who were traveling or, or very little British people who were able to travel to Iran. So the foreign world was not able to see it from the right angle and understand it. Uh, also, the government for some time did a good job of obscuring it. Every time they needed, they handpicked bunch of women of, of their own system and took the, to the stadium and let some foreign um, reporters come and take pictures. So they manipulated the whole fact as much. It was never reported in the outside world that uh, women's testimony is considered half the men. It was never reported that if I divorce as an Iranian um, woman, as an Iranian wife, I cannot hold the custody of my kids despite being the mother. And even if my husband is broke or drug addict or thief and everything, the kids within the system, naturally, the court gives them, the Islamic court naturally gives them to the father or the next male guardian. Imagine if I didn't have a husband, they would go to my father-in-law, for example. Mm. Like all of these stupid, barbaric laws and rules. These were not reflected in the outside world. So the outside world was not able to correctly judge it and, and report it and treat it. Also, um, I feel like for, for many years, um, the outside world was um, willing to negotiate and cooperate with the Islamic system for whatever, for political leverage, for economic leverage. And that's what should end. There should be no, any nuclear or any economic negotiation or any political negotiation with this regime, unless the world powers make it clear that this regime should first and foremost respect and provide women's rights and human rights and then they are willing to talk to them about X, Y, and Z. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on, Yegi. And I know you've a lovely baby to look after there yes. in a moment. So <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you so much. It's so important that we hear your voices. I'm going to continue talking to Mariam. But in the meantime, I really sure. appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, um, Mariam. Um, keep going. Uh, bravo to the old young Iranian women, wherever, women, wherever they are. And I really hope that we at least hear the news of less killings during these protests because uh, that is very inhumane. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mariam, I'd just like to go back to your story a little bit because you, you, you sort of painted the picture of your life in Iran. I, I, you managed to get out, you managed to get to Ireland two years ago. So ha- tell us about the lead up to that and how you managed to do that. For me, it was not possible to continue my life in Iran because it was not acceptable for me. Because when I was, uh, when I remember when I wanted to marry with my uh, partner, I asked him to sign a paper to give me all the equal rights I, I want. For instance, the, uh, the right for divorce, for the custody of the child or anything. I, I just wanted to have an equal right like a man, you know. And after that, we married and we both moved to Ireland. And in, in each step I passed in Ireland, this country gave me lots of opportunities as a woman, as a human. And I, I think it was really, really uh, shocking for me. They gave me the job very easy. I mean, I have a salary as much as a man. Uh, I mean, people respect me. No one doesn't question my religion or any other thing, which I have seen this a lot in Iran. And I think I'm a lucky person. I moved to Ireland. But, you know, I'm really, really sad for, for the all of the women who still live in my country and they are in the street and they are getting killed or arrested that's really tiring i i mean i am happy right now but i can't say i am fully happy because my happiness depends to other people you know i just want this freedom this happiness for all iranian women or for all the women in the world. This is our right. We are not bad people. We are, I mean, Iranian people are really nice. I mean, they deserve a better government, a better country. And that's the reason men, women, old, young, with any belief are in the street to call for an end to this regime. And hopefully it happens. I mean, it must be you're you're carrying on your normal life here in Ireland. You know, you work in human resources. Um, you have your partner, but you are watching the news every day. I mean, for us watching it, it's it's extraordinary. I can't imagine what it must be like for you being from there. When you saw the images of those girls in the school, uh, basically shouting at that man, that inspector, to get out and harassing him and all of that, what are you what are you feeling watching all of those things? I think after hearing the Mahsa Amini's death, I was really, really shocked. But after the protest started and I saw all of the Iranian women are burning that their hijab, it was a very, very emotional moment in my life because that was the picture I always wanted to see in Iran. I mean, it was really nice moment, but uh, right now I cannot contact with my family in Tehran because the internet is cut off. So literally, I can't talk to them, and it it uh, I can randomly talk with them, and it just via text. I'm really worried for them because uh, I think some days ago my brother said he was going to uh, to his office. And police came to the bus and started breaking the glasses and everything and beating people. They are, I mean, they are really, really, uh, I I do not know how can I uh, uh, describe these people, but this is not fair. And we are really worried. We are really nervous for our families. And all we can do is as an Iranian people who live in other countries, we just want to ever people, the government, the other countries, this is happening in 21st century in a country in the heart of Middle East. People want to be free, but the Islamic Republic is killing them and arresting them. This is all we want to be heard. Yeah. Do you think it's going to have an effect in other countries too? Because Iran is not the only country where women are oppressed in this way. I, I feel like it's going to spread. It's going to give courage to other women in other countries. Do you think that? 
Exactly. I think after Iran, it will be definitely Afghanistan because already uh, Afghan women are under pressure from Taliban. So I think it will be it will be amazing for the rest of the countries in Middle East because it means less terrorism, less funding to te- terrorist groups. You know. So I think it's better. It's better for the rest of the world. It will be a a better world without Islamic Republic and without terrorism. Mm. Mariam, I'm interested in your feminism and how it developed, because it sounds like from a very young age, you looked around and saw the inequality and knew that it wasn't right. Um, And I suppose some like you talked about brainwashing as you were growing up. Some women do get brainwashed and, and don't aren't alive and awake to those things. Why do you think that you were so aware from an early age? Actually, I remember I was 16. I went to a very religious and uh, religious and conservative school. So in that age, I thought to myself, I have read lots of books. Why I do not read Quran in Persian? Because they teach us to read Quran in Arabic. So I started reading Quran in Persian. There is a part, its name is women. The name of that part is women. So in part of that, uh, that, um, that story, it was written, if your wife stop listening to, to you, you can first stop sleeping with them and then you can beat them. I was really, really, really shocked. I took that book to my teacher and I said, look, it has been written. You can beat your uh, your wives. What does it mean? And she was like, no, no, you know, it has another translation. You cannot, uh, you cannot say something like this about Islam. You will be cursed. And I think it was, it was a con, I mean, it was a moment for me to start questioning and thinking about everything. I keep reading. I figure out many other horrible things. And that was when I didn't want to be Muslim anymore. I didn't want to cover my hair anymore. I, I just wanted to live a free life, a normal life. And I think it was, it happened for me very late in my 29, but finally it happened. <laughs> <laughs> finally that you got, you got out. But I suppose what you referred to earlier is, is freedom of choice. Um, I, I imagine that you're completely happy for women who want to wear the hijab and want to express themselves to do that. Exactly. Muslim women uh, in all over the world now, now they are a little bit terrified because it's, they said it's Islamophobia. No, we just want to have the freedom to choose our religion. If we want to be atheist, this is our choice. If they want to cover their hair, okay, that's fine. Just respect us and listen to us. And that's all we want. I mean, we just want to say Islam is not that, I mean, color, the scar, which Netflix shows. It's, it's something far from that. I mean, we we just want to have the freedom to choose whatever we want. Yeah. And so do you practice your religion now or are you religious, would you say? No, I am not. I, I think I gave up with religion and everything many years ago. I just want to have a... I just want to choose my my life by myself. And that's it. I do not want to be a religious person or I do not believe in anything. Well, I think that's very understandable. I was when you said earlier about the fact that Iran is essentially run by a priest. He's an 83 year old priest. And I think he doesn't have very much education either. And he's running the whole country. We in Ireland, I know that you probably know that like in the 1950s, we had someone called Archbishop John McQuaid, who was very much telling the government what to do. And Catholicism here had a very big influence on women and children, women and girls here for a long, long time. Um, no longer anymore, thank goodness. So I, I suppose we can kind of relate a little bit, but it's not as what draconian as what you experienced. But it, it does kind of resonate, I think, w- with everyone who knows what, what that religious oppression can do to a country. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's terrible. I think a, a secular country is the best thing anyone can born to or can have the nationality. I think I was talking about this with my friend. I said for a long time, I was really ashamed with my nationality because whenever I, I said I'm Iranian, they said I represent Islamic Republic. But we Iranian people really try to separate ourselves from Islamic Republic. And now I think 
It's good because now Iran is in headline in all the medias and news and all the people now know, at least when I say I'm from Iran, I say, oh, okay, that's fine because you are not something completely different from the image Islamic Republic tried to show to the world. So we just want a secular government. On a lighter note, Mariam, um, I've heard that Irish and Iranian cultures are kind of similar and there's an Iranian word called taraf, which I've heard means a kind of excessive, polite way of offering and refusing things like exactly. a cup of tea, for example. Exactly. So that you, you have to, you might refuse it initially out of politeness before accepting. Have you noticed any similarities in our cultures since exactly. you came here? Exactly. That's the thing really shocked me because I went with my Irish colleague to a restaurant and I started to say, I pay. And she said, no, I pay. And it was like, I pay. <laughs> oh, you have this thing. We are like each other. <laughs> so so there are things in common. Yeah, exactly. And I think another thing we are really in common is Irish people are not frank people. They are very polite and indirect. And Persian people are the same. We are not frank at all. Even if we want to say no, we just try to add many details and say we just try to say no, but in a very indirect way. And Irish people are exactly the same. And I think for me, I'm really, really lucky to be in Ireland because I really, really like Irish culture. And I think I just got used to this beautiful culture and and the country very fast. I, I really love Ireland. That's great. Well, before you go, Mary, maybe you could tell us your hopes for the future in Iran and how you think this is going to play out, because... Talking to Yegi earlier, she was very hopeful that it was a, a different moment, that it's not about reform, that it's about abolition of the regime. Do you feel that, that these protests will carry on and hopefully result in the change that you are longing for? Yeah, I, I, I have the same idea. I think people are not going to stop. And this is the beginning of a revolution. And this time, people do not want reformation or any other thing. People exactly want a regime change and i think in bloody november in 2019 we came to the street we went to lots of protests but regime that time killed five fifteen hundred people in the street during 10 days again they are doing this but people are people do not afraid of dying anymore this time is totally different with the other time and uh, I I have talked with my parents or with the, uh, with many other people who were alive in uh, revolution 1979 and they said everything is exactly similar to the other revolution so definitely it will happen but we really hope less people get killed this time yeah well Mary maybe you'll come on in another while to talk to us more as things evolve it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I wish you the best of luck in your life in Ireland thank you thank you so much for inviting me thank you that's all we have time for thanks so much to Mariam Mohit Mafi and to Yegana Rezaian the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.